Welcome to Faith in Sports with Onside Athletics. I'm your host, Theo Wan. At Onside, we run camps and programs for youth with the purpose of integrating faith, family, and sport. The Faith in Sports with Onside Athletics podcast was launched to give a chance for Christians in the sport world to share their story of faith and sport and to encourage you to live out your faith wherever God has placed you. We would love for you to share this podcast with your family, church, and community. And if you want to learn more about Onside Athletics, you can check us out at onsideathletics.ca and at Onside Athletics on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our guest this week is Claire Carver-Diaz. She's an Olympian who won a bronze medal for Canada at the 2000 Summer Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. All right, I'm here with Claire Carver-Diaz, a woman of many hats, ex-Olympian, professor, podcaster, author, management consultant, and last but not least, mother of four children as well. So Claire, thank you for taking time to come on the podcast here. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate that. And we're going to start right away talking about your career as a synchronized swimmer. You have many accomplishments in that area. So how did you get started in that field and what led you to become a synchronized swimmer? I grew up in Montreal and aquatic sports, all four aquatic sports, you might not know that there are four, but there are four, water polo, diving, swimming, and synchronized swimming, are pretty mainstream sports there. So it wasn't a niche sport like it is in other places. And at about the age of 11, I realized that I might have a little bit of talent in this sport called synchronized swimming and joined a, what we call a winter club. So a competitive synchronized swimming club. Cool. And can you walk the audience then through what your life was like growing up, pursuing this uh, goal of being like an elite uh, synchronized swimmer there? Sure. And I can even rewind a little bit and say, so before I was a synchronized swimmer, I was a competitive swimmer. And one of my experiences there too, was that it wasn't it didn't bring me that much joy. So I was there, I was staring at the bottom of the pool, going up and down the same lane, which is great for some people. My oldest daughter is a competitive swimmer. She loves it. But I did notice on the other side of the pool in the deep end, these girls dancing in the water and really enjoying that sort of team team camaraderie. And I really wanted to participate in that. So I tried it out in the summer and then joined a club. And then I immediately just threw myself into training and loved, really, really loved almost every moment of it. Not every moment that would be, <laughs> that would be, you know, revisionist history, almost every moment, even the tougher training I really enjoyed. And the thing about synchronized swimming is that the hours are long. So even at the age of 12, I was training about four and a half hours every day and sometimes six every day, <laughs> except for Sundays. So six days a week. So it was a lot of training, which meant a lot of giving up of other activities. So I couldn't join the drama club at school. You know, I had to do everything within certain hours. And my social life really shifted to being friends with my teammates versus having friends in the neighborhood that I hung out with. So things did really shift. But it didn't, it felt really organic at the time. And I I think it's because I loved the sport so much that I, I got so much joy out of being with my teammates and training. And I didn't feel like I was missing out on other things. 
you might have felt that you could have been missing out potentially if you weren't doing that because you were so excited about it. Would that be correct? Absolutely. So I think if I was, you know, if my parents had imposed upon me that I had to be competitive and then I had to attend all the training and and it was drudgery to me, I think I'd be in the pool upside down spinning like you do in synchronized swimming going, I wish I was at drama club. I wish I could have joined the play this year. I wish I could have, but I very rarely had those I wish moments. They came occasionally. And retrospectively, I see those as really valuable learning opportunities. So the moment moments like I couldn't go on a field trip because I had was going to miss practices, I had to make that choice. And my parents always said, like, this is your choice to make. And I would almost always choose to go and be with my teammates. And at the time, was, those decisions were hard. But looking back, I said, well, it's kind of like life. You have to decide what, which one you're going to prioritize. And I, I would prioritize my teammates, typically. And I know uh, it's a bit of a retrospective now. But in looking back, was your goal always to become this high-level synchronized swimmer like making the olympics was that your goal as a kid is that something because we hear a lot of kids in canada especially dreaming of being an nhl hockey player so that's uh that's why they train that's their goal so was that your goal like wearing the canadian flag and being able to represent canada at the olympics so surprisingly no it really wasn't i was really interested in just being good at the sport and in fact i never dreamed of going to the olympics until it was within reach which doesn't fit into that sort of Disney movie, this this mythology around athletes aspiring from, you know, toddlerhood to ascend the podium. I didn't have those dreams. Some of my Olympic teammates did. So they would talk about pretending as a child to be, you know, in the backyard winning medals and that they always dreamed of going to the Olympics. They would say things like that. And sometimes they would say things like every Olympian has had this dream since childhood. And I'd be sitting there going, well, I didn't. <laughs> and surely there are other people like me. So I think there's those of us who who really are in it because we love it. Dreams are more about being the best we can be and not so much about reaching some sort of pinnacle experience. And that, honestly, that is, I'm not just saying that as a nice to say thing. It was really what drove me on a daily basis. It's the things that made the small S sacrifices, not big S, small S sacrifices manageable for me as a teenager was that I just wanted to get better and better and better. That, that, that was it. That was the extent of my dream. For any of the parents of onside listening there, is that some advice you would maybe share with parents of children in competitive athletics of the, the keyword being pushed or guide them into, into what they want to do? But what would be your advice for them in that area? If they have a child who wants to, you know, play junior hockey, let's say, for example. So I think my main message here is that not every child is going to be the same in the way they dream about their sport, about their aspirations. And I would say as a parent now, I'm not pushing my children. In fact, I'm listening to what they say and how they express their objectives. And then my goal would always be for them to reach their personal best, whatever that is in whatever it is they're pursuing. And to stick with things through the hard times, which I, I imagine we'll we'll get to talking about that a little bit, but there's no, like I said, you know, we train all this and it was almost all good, but there are always going to be anything worth pursuing 
is going to have a trough, you know, like that kind of low point that you hit. And when you're in competitive sport, those low points come a lot. You lose a lot more than you win. And learning those lessons are hard. But as a parent, my advice to other parents would be help your children learn how to through and push through those moments. Because part of uh, a little bit of the culture right now is trying to avoid pain in some ways or avoiding negativity and, uh, and the losses as we talk about in sport. Would you say that's kind of uh, something that you see as well? Yes. And you're doing your children a disservice to protect them at all costs from pain. So obviously there are big risks and major disappointments that you would do everything to steer your children away for. Absolutely. Danger, all of those unnecessary risks. I totally get that impulse and that makes sense. In fact, I talked to corporate people about this. We need to learn how to fail. And we, again, to use the disservice line, we do our children a disservice when we don't give them an opportunity to fail. And you need to decide as a parent where you're going to help your children learn to fail and how you can encourage them through that. So I was very, very blessed to have two parents who believed in competitive sport would drive me, you know, be a part of carpools, weren't constantly pushing me towards things. And we're really honest about, you know, I'd have a performance and I'd get out of the water and maybe, you know, we'd get marks, right? And maybe I felt a little bit like I suffered an injustice. I should have done better. And I would listen to some of my teammates' parents say, oh, you know, you were really shortchanged. You should have done better. You know, the judges were unfair. And my parents would, my parents would be very honest and say, well, the other team actually looked really good and that wasn't your best performance. And they were, they weren't coaching me. They were just very honest and helped me reframe things like to say, Hey, we're biased here and we're too close to this to really understand what the judges saw. So let's try to be unbiased. And I actually think that that helped me in life. So they helped me work through and learn through some of those disappointments. Definitely understand that refereeing for onside and seeing uh, parents getting uh, excited there. It's sometimes hard to take away the, the bias aspect. So totally get that and good on your uh, parents for leading you in that way. And uh, just speaks to the importance of ha- having a really good support system of parents supporting youth and their athletic uh, pursuits there. But going back to your story there of swimming, going in the deep end, looking down and then seeing these synchronized swimmers out there. What really attracted you to that? specifically compared to just doing the lengths and and working on uh, the skill of uh, competitive swimming? Yeah, for me, uh, synchronized swimming was this beautiful blend of artistry and sport. So there was a real technical side to it and a physical demanding nature to the sport, which I loved, but also had this artistic outlet. And that appealed to me. I was someone who's very musical. I, I liked dance. I liked all of these, that, that side of that art side. And synchro gave me both. The other thing I loved about it was that it was a team. So a team sport, it wasn't an individual sport. And looking back, I'm grateful that I learned what it means to be a good teammate. So that it's not always about your you, that you give and you take, and that everyone has a role and that supporting your teammates can only elevate the performance. And even competing against your teammates in a friendly way can elevate the performance. That there's a lot less 
ego in it. That ego kind of has to sit to the side. So th those are pretty great lessons to learn as a child. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I love team sports. And I think they teach us those valuable lessons. Yeah, that's basically summarized as uh, the, the need for team sport athletics and why it's great. And in terms of synchronized swimming, can you give the audience some quick misconceptions that people have about it? Because I'm sure you get that a lot. Do you hear the music? Like what's happening when you're underwater? A lot of people don't know too much about it. So can you give us a quick snapshot for us there, Claire? Absolutely. Most people's understanding of synchronized swimming is what they saw on Saturday Night Live, which is there's this famous synchronized swimming skit. It's 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 hilarious, but it's kind of embarrassing. Does your sport a disservice? <laughs> you know what? It's funny. It's funny. It's worth we can we can have to laugh at ourselves, right? It's, it is funny. So the things that I'm asked most about are how long can you hold your breath? So there's this perception that we're constantly underwater. We are underwater quite a bit. So probably, you know, in 30 second segments, you're, you're underwater, but you come up and breathe and you go back on under. You cannot touch the bottom. So it's in a deep pool. So you're never touching the bottom. So those people that go into their backyard pools and say, look, I'm doing synchronized swimming. You have no idea because you it's really difficult. So you have to tread water or you're upside down and you never touch the bottom. You get a huge penalty if you do. The other things people need to know is that, yeah, you can hear the music underwater. It's actually clearer because there is an other sound under there. And we wear nose plugs, which are hideously unattractive, but they keep the water from going up your nose. They are essential. I think those would be the main questions I get. I mean, there's so, I could go on for hours about the sport. Yeah. I was going to say you could, uh, spend the whole whole next few hours talking about it yeah and canada actually so one thing that your listeners might not know is that canada has a real legacy of success in the sport so we've always been about top six in the world and we we've won i think a medal in every olympics up to 2000 which was the olympics i was in we won that was the last time canada's won a medal in synchronized swimming at the olympics but up to that point we had won a medal in every olympics so pretty impressive legacy for sure and is there active uh recruiting from competitive swimmers or is it more from dancers who then transfer into swimming like how does that work in terms of these winter clubs as you mentioned recruiting future athletes and hopefully future olympians so there used to be a lot of a lot more active recruitment from swimming but i would say it is a bit more of a natural movement or in from the dance sports rhythmic gymnastics, ballet, uh, competitive dance into synchronized swimming, but it's essential that you can swim really well. So most synchronized swimmers are also very high level swimmers. So very fast because you, you have to be able to stay afloat and you have to be able to move and move in every different way in the water. And it, so you need to be a very, very strong swimmer. So it's usually a combination of those two skills. That does make sense. And it sounds like also you talked about being a good teammate and it seems like that sport specifically, you would just need to have a lot of trust in the teammates around you because you're not necessarily wanting to look at, oh, are they doing this movement properly? Because you got to focus on yourself. And also if you were to look that way, it would mess up the routine, for example. So there's a lot of trust involved, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And there's trust in some ways that people wouldn't necessarily guess. So it's actually a sport with a very, the highest level, it has a high level injury which you wouldn't guess because we're in the water, but it's because you wear no equipment. You're just in a bathing suit with a nose plug and you are in close proximity, moving very, very quickly. 
supposedly in synchronization with other people. So if you're, you know, re almost shoulder to shoulder in the water, you're kicking each other under the water quite a bit. And when you descend underwater, if someone's off timing and does a kick at the wrong time to your face, <laughs> you sustain injuries. So you're, you're just completely unprotected. And also we do these things called throws. So they, where one or two people get basically tossed like in cheerleading and you can land when you're training, you can land on other swimmers. And so high level of concussions at the highest level. So the, the lower levels, it's injuries are rare. And in terms of uh, the training, is there a lot of dry land uh, with routines or is it all just in the water? That would be my last uh, misconception question there. Well, I would distinguish between two things. So in a synchronized swimming routine, you do something called deck drill before you dive in the water, which is like a little dance. It's 10 seconds. That's it. It's just to start off to get yourself in the water. But for cross training purposes, to be fit and be able to move and be flexible and so on, you do a really high volume of land training. So cross, cross training, running, cycling, strength and conditioning, dance, all of that happen. And typically Pilates and other things in addition to the work you're doing in the water. So that's why it's so many hours because you, you're trying to get this balance of grace and power and endurance and everything all in one sport. Not unlike figure skating. Figure skating would be similar in, in the, the length of time you have to spend training. So we're going to talk about something that will bring hopefully a lot of joy to your heart, the 2000 Sydney Olympics there. Can you walk the audience through the competitions before that when you found out that you qualified and that whole experience being known as one of the best synchronized swimmers in the world qualifying for the Olympics? Yeah. Oh, I mean, in some ways it's ancient history. It was 20 years ago, but in other ways it feels like it was yesterday. And I still feel like in my head, I could do those things, which really I can't. So we tried out individually uh, for the Olympic team about a year and a half prior to the games. So that's where you're, you centralize. And in fact, it was maybe even longer than that. We were all together training intensely for a really long time. They, they pick a larger team and then, then they cut members, not unlike hockey or other team sports. And that's, and that's difficult. That's a really difficult thing to, to go through. And then in the lead up to the games, you, you do compete internationally. And you also go to, in our time anyway, an Olympic trials. Changed now a bit, but we went to an Olympic trials and had to qualify. And we were going in about fourth or fifth, ranked fourth or fifth as a team in the world. None of us had previously been to the Olympics. All of that team essentially retired after the 96 games. So we were the least experienced team of all the nations. We were so very green. Technical skills were not our strength. And so we, we had to come up with a strategy that would make us stand out. We all got behind that the vision of having the most athletic and the most creative routine at the 2000 Olympic Games. And we went into the game still competing with the U.S. To, for a medal position. And so at the Olympic Games, we did win a bronze. So and the Americans fell to fifth. And so that was quite a, an interesting and fun kind of climax to this whole journey. Awesome. And the last question I'll ask uh, within the sport background is you had a chance to be the chef de mission at the 2018 Commonwealth Games. So that's a pretty cool opportunity. Can you tell the listeners what that's about? Because they might not know what it means to be to be that position there. 
the title is Chef de Mission, but it has nothing to do with food. So it's it borrows from the French term. It essentially means head of de- delegation or the chief. Yeah, you're not cooking for the whole team is what you're saying. That would be horrible. They'd all go home with food poisoning. So it was a team of just over 300 athletes. And then when you add on coaches and support staff and volunteers, it was close to 500 people that I was leading. So the head of the Canadian delegation at the Commonwealth Games it was in Australia, which was really fun. Obviously one of my favorite places for many reasons. And that experience was great because it was fun to return to sport and have a position that was more about supporting the athlete's performance. So being on the other side, uh, the sport game, and really focusing all my attention in making sure the athletes could have the best possible performance. And it helped me appreciate, again, retrospectively, all of the volunteers and people and parents and coaches and managers who contributed to my journey. So it was a wonderful kind of full circle moment for me. And what were some challenges that you uh, encountered uh, with that position? Because you're, like you said, managing 500 people. I assume there's going to be some challenges coming up there. So what were some main challenges that you experienced while you're doing that? Lots of challenges. But all expected. So you you do tra- mm-hmm. you actually train and prepare for those moments. I would say the biggest thing that has helped me in my career, it's helped me in my parenting, something I learned through that experience was that, so let me paint the picture here. The Commonwealth Games is about 14 days long. Everyone shows up, they're refreshed, they're energetic, they're excited. And then as the games go along, the stress is mounting, the the excitement is mounting, the volunteers and staff and coaches and everything are sleeping less and less and less because they have to do more stuff. There's so many things going on. And the more, especially the volunteers, the more the sleeping is reduced, the higher the emotion, the higher the miscommunication, issues start to crop up. And almost all of those issues are people's inability to communicate effectively because of fatigue. So it drove home the importance of finding rest in even in stressful times and showing grace when other people are exhausted. It's astounding that that was the biggest thing that came out of it, but it did show me that issues crop up between people when we are not rested. And it's so simple, but it is this, I go to bed earlier now because I saw it, this happening unraveling in real time. I also want to say on the sort of happier side of this is it was an incredible experience. It was one of the best games in terms of the Canadian performance and the, the staff that was there really wanted to go out of their way and give up sleep to serve other people. It's just one of those, it's kind of like the airplane experience, you know, like everyone was putting the air mass on other people and not taking care of themselves. And it just, it causes problems. So easily, easily avoided problem. Yeah. And that's a a heat of warning there. I know a lot of uh, university students think they can just pull uh, seven all-nighters during exam season, for example. And uh, that, that doesn't necessarily, you can't, uh, have that last forever and so it sounds like as well at a games like that the energy's up high but you got to get the sleep as well so great points there claire and we're going to move to the second part of the episode there you did talk a little bit use some buzzwords there getting rest showing grace so some good buzzwords there for us but how do you see the gospel 
what Jesus has done for us fit into your time as an athlete and even now as a parent, as someone who was, as we talked about, chef de mission and, and things like that? Mm, it's a great question and actually something I wrestled with a lot as an athlete. I would constantly remind myself that I wasn't saving lives, that I was spinning upside down in water to music with other people, that in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't enormously important. But I would say that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, say, however, this is my chosen career. This is something I've been given talent and support to pursue. And therefore, this is something I will glorify God through. And wrestling, I think it's fine to wrestle with those those questions. I think I consistently land on while this is God's will, I will glorify him through this. And when it's time to stop, I need to listen to his voice and retire with grace at that point, rather than continue this pursuit, um, something that ends up being quite, it can be quite self-focused. It doesn't have to be, but it can be quite self-focused because you're thinking about your body, your health, your success, and people in your family have to give things up to be flexible to your needs. And at a certain point, it was, so 2002, that was my time. It was like, this is the end of this journey. You could continue two more years and win another medal at the Olympics, or now is the time. I felt very strongly that that was the point where it was time to move on. And so listening to that is sometimes putting your ego aside and listening to that was, it was difficult, but definitely part of that journey. Yeah. Claire, thank you for uh, sharing that part of your story there. And in terms of as you were growing up and being successful, I'm sure a lot of success was coming to you and people were telling you how good you were in your team. So how do you balance that with being a Christian as well? Trying to, to stay humble a little bit as you're getting all these accolades. Was that difficult at all? Yeah, I, I think it's the same thing. Like you're constantly wrestling with these things. So when people would say, hey, this, you know, you're really good at this. You're really good at this. Trying to maintain the perspective that anything that I have been given is to God's glory. It's not out of my own strength, but the strength that he's given me, you know, like that is a hard thing in sport. That's really difficult to balance. It is, it is. Because you hear professional athletes being elevated, you know, and, and, and their skills being like, look at what they did and everything. And it's hard to constantly balance that with, this is also about God. This is about what God's given me and what God's blessed me with. So that, uh, that, that was a constant battle, I would say. Now, the fortunate thing is that in synchronized swimming, there is this approach. The culture of synchronized swimming is that you can always do better. So there's no such thing as perfection. And I found that that could keep you humbled. So it's the, you know, like I'm here to do this because it's a calling for me, God-given skill here, but I can always get better. I can always improve. And so that kind of would keep you humble as well. There's no such thing as perfection. And the other thing that helped was that you were in it with seven other people. That helps working with other people, I find, keeps you grounded. Because they're not going to let your ego get completely blown out of proportion. They're going to keep reminding you of where you can improve and that you're a, you're a fallible human being as well. So that, that was helpful too. Yeah, definitely a question I wanted to ask though, because we definitely see it 
in sports where athletes are elevated and sometimes they think uh, they're really great. But as you said, we're all fallible human beings and suspect to uh, to mistakes and such. And so within those challenges, uh, times of training or even disappointments at competition, how did you see God in those experiences? What was your uh, posture then when you were uh, maybe not as successful as you would like to be? He's always there. So I think that's, to me, it was a comfort. And I'll give you an example of, uh, for me, those small, always part of my Christian journey, the little snippets of prayer have always been a great comfort to me. So those like, you're feeling an emotion that's like, okay, this doesn't feel good. I don't know how to process this. Or someone just said something to me that really hurt those little moments of consciousness that God is my friend and he's, he, he's here and he wants me to share these things with him. I found that very comforting. So the lo- the little disappointments to go, before I respond, Lord, help me through this, help me process this. And should I be listening to these words and, and learning something for it? Or is this in where I should be t- not talking back, but having this dialogue with this person, like help me, guide me. So I found that very comforting. So the story I wanted to tell was about the World Championships in 1998. This was my first major competition, also in Australia. It was in Perth, Australia. And our team had centralized in Calgary the year leading up to those games. So I had left university for a little bit. I'd left my fiance, my now husband. I had gone to Calgary to train intensively. And throughout that whole journey, our team kept saying to each other, well, Canada's always won a medal at major, major games. We had this legacy of success. Basically, we just have to show up and we're going to win a medal. That's that's kind of attitude we had. And we showed up at the games and we had a decent short program, which is the shorter program. And then there's a long program in team and the very last lift. We lifted one of my teammates up in the air and she fell off. So that's like falling on a jump in figure skating. Like it's a make or break moment, last second. In fact, that's how the routine ended was this lift and she fell flat on her face. And we got out of the, that pool that day and we ended up, I believe it was fifth. And it was, it was embarrassing because of the attitude that we had gone in with, which is we got this every, we got this. And also all that we had given up, felt like we had given up to, to train and centralize and then go to Australia in our biggest moment and fail. And it felt like I've often described it, it's not unlike in that very moment, the feeling of grief, like that, oh my gosh, I can't ever get that back. Like I'll, you know, like I'll never see that person again is the grief thing that I'll never be able to live this moment. I remember going back to my hotel room and trying to process this grief, trying to figure out like, is it godly that I feel this way? And what can I learn from this? And I remember that it was, it was a really low moment and that and having a really keen sense that God was there uh, during that time and that it wasn't, it was okay to feel disappointed. We don't just stay there. We don't stay in the disappointment that there is, there was an opportunity to journey out of that as well. And, and that, you know, that is probably a lesson that is hard to learn. And sport is a great place 
to learn to learn those lessons, right? To really have to cling to God regularly because of those low moments going, what do I learn from this? And is it okay that I'm feeling this way? That those are precious, precious lessons. Thank you for sharing that story. And it sounds like something you you maybe even think about now, right? Of 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 things that you've learned from it and how it's impacted your relationship with God. So thank you for sharing that. And you talked about retiring in 2002. So in terms of listening to God's voice, hearing what he had to to tell you or say about that situation, also knowing that he gives us free will in, in areas as well, what led you to, to really believing that this was a time for you to kind of hang up the, the nose strap, I guess is what they call it, hang up the skates usually in hockey, but hang up the nose strap there. What, what led you to that? So a couple of things. So I would say part of this was after the 2000 Olympic Games, I wrestled with whether I should continue training or should I focus on something else? So it was that like, is this selfish or is this not? And at that time, the conclusion was, no, I should still be doing this. That was a definitely the guidance I felt at that time. And I actually felt like it was like, okay, we'll put a two-year window to this and I will go and compete at the Commonwealth Games. And that will be the end of it. And I'll, at that point, my husband will have had enough because we got married in 1998. So this is leading up to 2002. It's time for me to also give him an opportunity to do things that he wants to do. And as I got closer to 2002, that's when some of the other voices come in like, oh, you're ranked third in the world now. You should stay in duet. You should stay and you can go win a medal in duet. Wouldn't that be great? And not only was I hearing that internally, my ego, if you will, was saying that I, my coach was saying that my duet partner was saying that. And I still felt, I felt like the right thing to do. And the guidance I was getting from the Holy spirit was no, this is the end of the journey. It's time to move on. It's time to move on to new things. It's not like you just, you end it and there's nothing else, you know, it's just, no more life. Yeah. There were, other exciting adventures that were laid out ahead of me. I didn't know what they were at the time, but you know, going to do a master's degree was kind of one thing that was attracting me as well. So it's not like when you give something up because you feel like that's what you're being led to do, it's not like there's nothing else there. There's all these other wonderful things waiting. And had I not given up Synchro at that point, I would never have discovered what those were in that time period. Awesome. And now we're going to kind of wrap this up here. But uh, you gave some advice earlier for, for parents. I'm going to give you a chance to give some more advice to parents, especially the parents that are of faith and, and trust in the Lord. What would you say to them in terms of raising their children as athletes and the knowledge of the Lord? What would that look like? Or what, what advice would you have for them? The first piece of advice I would give is to remind them that it's okay to be really good at things and that in that understanding that we do these things to glorify God like to the glory of God it's okay to pursue being the best at something if that's totally fine we shouldn't feel guilty about that it's just who are you doing it for it's kind of the question this the second thing that I've been trying to instill in my children is that it's also okay not to be the best at things. So that's the pursuit of personal best, whatever that is. But I've been trying to teach my children, and this is really hard, that I care more about 
effort. So I, I think it is more valuable to learn how to work hard than to just succeed it, right? So learning to work hard is a skill, characteristics that you can pull through to every area of life. It is, you can learn that through sport. So as parents to encourage children to learn how to work hard could be the best result of participation in sport. Awesome. So you heard it there. Former Olympian Claire Carver-Diaz giving some great advice for the parents out there of onside. So Claire, thank you for coming in and, and giving up of your time. I know you're you're very busy, as I mentioned on the top. There are a lot of hats. So any last uh, second or last minute thoughts there for the audience at home or wherever they're listening? I, yes, I feel like I need to say I'm not a perfect parent. There is no such thing. And so even though I've said all these things and, and maybe I've said, hopefully I've said them in articulate ways, we're going to screw up and we're going to, you know, fall on our faces and we're going to make wrong decisions every once in a while. And that's okay. And so just like we're encouraging our children to learn, I think we also need to learn in the process. So I don't want people to think I'm perfect or that I think I'm perfect. I'm not, I guess I may, I'm in the making here as a parent. God is still forming me. Yeah. And that journey is a uh, continual, right? So the continual growth there in our walk as Christians. So Claire, thank you for showing up here on the podcast. Yeah. Giving us your time. Appreciate that. Thank you. Our episode next week features coach Chris Tim, a high performance track and field coach for high school athletes. In this interview, coach Chris shares about his motivation for coaching, his experiences sharing his faith in the track and field world, and he offers some great advice for coaches and parents. If you want to connect with Onside Athletics, you can find us at onsideathletics.ca and at Onside Athletics on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. May we continue to glorify God in everything we do. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a blessed week.